Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 1st, 2013, and this is episode 1218 of the Survival Podcast, but it's uh, very soon going to take you back all the way to January 20th, 2009 for episode 126 of the Survival Podcast when I was still cruising the highways between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. This will be the first of many reruns uh, this month. I have figured out that I have exactly 18 days where I am completely taken out of the ability to be doing shows this this month. So that just puts me into a position where this is the only, I mean, it's either no shows or we do this. But the cool thing is, because it's relatively quick for me to just take the old show, put a new front end on it, I can put a new front end on it, give you some context, and talk about some of the things that are going on around here, like the government shutdown, which we'll talk to about in a bit, and this will bring back to life some of the old shows that went away. Today's show is going to be about airsoft and air guns for training. When I did this show, I was talking about how much more economical it is to use them as training tools. They don't replace firearms, but they do allow you to train a lot more than if you had to train only with uh, live weapons. And it also it allowed people to train more often because you could train with them in places and, and times and locations where you could not do that with conventional firearms. That's still true today, but the economics are even more compelling given the price of ammo. When I originally did this, the price of ammo was, in two words, cheap and available. And cheap and abundant, I think, would be a better word to put it. Anyway, before I uh, bring you back to 2009, let's take care of our housekeeping. And let's also take a look at the government shutdown and the year 1218. First up with our uh, sponsors of the day, though. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. You know, if you're like me, occasionally you have aches or pains from working or uh, minor injuries or things like that. You're relatively healthy, but occasionally maybe there's something you need or maybe you have a point where, you know, you'd like to just relax a little bit more in the evening so you can get some good sleep, what have you. And you don't rely, want to rely on pharmaceuticals. Western Botanicals is the place for everything like that, uh, and, and far more advanced herbal preparations as well. When I need something and I don't have it, I go to Western Botanicals, and they do. When I need something and I don't know what it is, I'll be honest, I have my wife call Western Botanicals, and she talks to them, and they tell us what we need. And uh, they're just great people with an amazing assortment. Everything there is either organically grown or wild-crafted. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. And remember, if you're a member of the Support Brigade, you get their premium membership, which costs everybody else 50 bucks a year free, absolutely free. And that means you get 25% off everything that they sell. So they're a great supporter of the show, a longtime supporter of the show. Next up today, herbs of a different kind. Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. Chef Keith is awesome. He was going to come to the October workshop, but uh, some things got crossed, and by the time he tried to get met at his airfare, it was ridiculously expensive, so uh, he's not coming. But you know what he did? He sent some stuff for every student at the event, uh, some some of his, uh, his cooking spices for every student at the event, just to support what's going on here. That's awesome, man. Um, and, and Chef Keith's a great guy. And I'll tell you what, if you don't think cooking's a survival skill, buddy, live on MREs for a couple months like I did. I actually lived on MREs for six months uh, in Honduras during one deployment. And you start to realize how valuable it is to know how to cook, to know how to make things have flavor, to know how to make things have more variety. And Chef Keith can help you in a variety of ways. He's got a great YouTube channel. He's got a great podcast, he's got a great blog, and he's got great products. You'll find it all at HarvestEating.com. Next up, do want to remind you about that Member Support Brigade. Hey, this is what happens. You join the Member Support Brigade, every episode of TSP ever produced, like the old one you're going to hear today, available in convenient zip files. Um, discounts to 40 different vendors are now in the MSB. Discounts that are so good, they put the money right back in your pocket. Private videos for members only. Video weekend reviews that we just started. We did the first two that came out really cool. I'll probably be doing this one from the road. Uh, the MSB is awesome. And uh, if you want to support this show at about 18.3 cents an episode, that's the way to do it. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you qualify for the service discount. Again, active duty or prior service does not matter. 
You send me an email, put service discount in the subject line, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. One to two sentences is all I need. Send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com before, not after you join. With that, let's get into uh, the, the main body of the episode today. Uh, before I take you back to January of uh, 2009, let's look at going all the way back to the year 1218. Um, I've noticed the thing as I've been preparing all the shows for next week for you guys. This is kind of a dull time. Um, but what did happen during this time is the Fifth Crusade. And in 1218, the Crusaders leave Acre for Egypt. Now, Acre is a city in uh, Israel. So they now go to Egypt, and then they besiege a city in Egypt known as Dementea, uh, and that's where the Fifth Crusades kind of are. So we still have uh, the Crusaders uh, battling throughout the Middle East. Uh, something else happens during this time that we actually have shades of still around today under a new paint job, I guess you would say. In, uh, in Spain, in July, in order to facilitate the movement known as Reconquista, Pope Honorarius III reverses Innocent III's earlier judgment and declares Ferdinand III of Castilla legitimate heir to the Kingdom of Leon uh, in Spain. So basically, Reconquista was a period that lasted over 700 years that involved basically taking Spain back from Muslim Islamic control. And uh, that did take, again, over 700 years for that to occur. And uh, what does that have to do with today? Well, actually, there's a, there's a movement uh, out there today, and um, I think it gets a little bit overblown by some of the people that just have to, you know, really go out of their way to bash all uh, immigrants. Uh, but there is a legitimate movement, and there is a, a sense of things uh, from the Mexican illegal immigration community, known as Reconquista. Because they feel that Texas and the southwestern United States used to be part of Mexico. And, uh, yeah, there was a war that changed that, but in some ways they're correct. And uh, they believe that they can reconquista the southwestern United States just in sheer numbers. If you want to know more about that, you can look up reconquista. Uh, and I'll have a link where you can kind of track this all down for the year 1218 in today's show notes. So it's amazing somehow how things or ideas get reborn. Next up, before I bring on uh, Jack Spierko from 2009, let's talk about what's going on right now. The government shutdown. Um, this is a big, who cares? I mean, really. If you're one of the 800,000 federal employees that are you know currently basically on furlough, which is a nice way of saying you're laid off, yeah, it sucks, right? But I'll tell you what, um, the federal government's too big and something's got to give. And uh, I think it's all paint. I think the Republicans in this are going to cave and they're going to backstab everybody that they're looking like they're holding the line for right now. But I hope they don't. Of course, the current shutdown is all about Obamacare. And instead of listening to what the TV tells you, let me tell you what has happened in the short, non-bullshit segment that Jack Spierko always does about things like this. The Republicans in the House have said, we're not paying for Obamacare. We're not funding it. We control the checkbook. Now, a guy named Spierko told you all the way back in 2008 that the most powerful branch of government in the United States today was the United States House of Representatives because they control the money. And that if they really want to fix something, all they have to do is cut funding to it if they ever had the balls to do it. It looks like maybe, kind of, sort of, they do. Now, understand the government is still bloated and still overspending massive amounts of money, bleeding money, destroying the economy. Obamacare is just really, really expensive, and on top of all of it, heads the nation quicker toward bankruptcy. The voters have put the House of Representatives solidly in the hands of the Republicans. The debt ceiling, which is how much money this government's allowed to borrow, is controlled by congressional approval. And the Republicans in the Congress have said, we will not raise the debt ceiling and apportion money toward Obamacare. We will raise the debt ceiling. We will allow everything else the government wants to do, which, in my opinion, is far too much to be funded. But this one thing stays on the table for negotiations. The Democrats, who control the Senate, have said, no, we'll hold our breath and we'll shut the government down. And you did it. You're holding the country hostage. That's it. That's the whole thing. But you are being told, oh my God, this guy is falling. Wait, they're not, they're not saying that. 
No, they're really not. They're not going crazy. You know why? There's no election coming. Do you remember the last time this happened? The last time we got close to this, we were coming up to elections, and like the people on like CNN and NSNBC and all that knew it was good for Obama, the Republicans got to blame. We're like, the world will end. Everybody, grandma will starve. And now they're like, oh well, you know, they're going to pay the soldiers. The Social Security is going to get paid. So I wanted to see what is the mainstream or the lamestream media saying about the government shutdown. Well, CNN wants you to know. There are ten ways a government shutdown will affect you, your daily life. I'm reading. This is their freaking headline. Ten ways a government shutdown will affect your daily life. Let me read them to you, and you tell me how these apply to you. Because boy, these are a stretch. Ten vacation. All I ever wanted. Need to get away. Well, you can't. At least not to national parks or national zoos or national museums. They'll be closed. That's 368 National Park Service sites closed. Millions of visitors turned away. Were you more along the lines of a trip to France? If you don't already have a passport, you might have to bid that adieu. You might not get your blue book in time. The last time the government threw a hissy fit, 200,000 applications for passports went unprocessed. Tourism and airline revenues reeled. But according to the State Department's current shutdown plan, offices will remain open because they generate enough fees to support their operation. <laughs> Wait a minute! Do you mean that if we ran a government based on the concept that a department had to generate enough revenue based on need and demand to sustain itself, it would be sustainable? Holy crap! Any offices located in a federal building affected by the shutdown, however, may not be open. <laughs> Holiday, celebrate. Don't go to work if you're a federal employee. You're on furlough. Offer not valid for workers in critical services such as air traffic controllers, hazardous waste handlers, and food inspectors. Do take some time to celebrate. In previous shutdowns, everyone who stayed home was paid retroactively after peace returned to Washington. So it's going to affect you because you don't get paid to not go to work if you're a federal employee, but you'll probably get paid when it's over. Maybe. Now, how many of us don't work for the federal government are not getting furloughed? So that doesn't affect me. So I'm still looking for. I'm not going to a national park. I don't want to go to France. I, I don't yet know how. Okay, hold on. Number eight. I won't back down. The men and women in uniform will stay on the job and be paid according to legislation approved by Congress in the run up to the shutdown. How does that affect anybody? How does that affect anybody? How is that? I mean, do you not see how hard they're reaching to explain to you how this is going to affect you? Seriously, the, the number eight way this is going to affect you is all the people in the armed services are going to keep doing what they've been doing and get paid. In other words, that affects nobody. Seven. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. You may be thinking, no functioning government, no need to pay taxes. Think again. The man would continue to collect taxes. U.S. bonds would still be issued, and other essential banking functions will go on. So, how does that affect me? This should be called ten ways the government shutdown doesn't affect you. Wait a minute, Mr. Postman. You know the whole neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night thing. Apparently, the U.S. Postal Service works through shutdowns as well. Sorry, you won't catch a break from junk mail, but hey, you may already be a winner. So I'll still get my mail. How does this affect me? Five. I want a new drug. Oh, the irony! Republicans still want to defund, delay, and otherwise chip away at Obamacare in exchange for funding the government. But the Health Care Act at the center of this storm would continue its implementation process during the shutdown. That's because the funds aren't dependent on congressional budget process. So Obamacare's implementation process continues as normal during the shutdown. How does this affect me? I don't know. Pass the ammunition. Not so fast. A shutdown would affect the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Translation: That gun permit you wanted processed won't happen anytime soon if this goes on for a while. Uh, what gun permit? Class three federal firearm stamp, a、uh, CNR license, a federal firearms license, gun permit. I don't need a federal gun permit. Well, in the state of Texas, buy guns in the state of Texas. A federal permit is not necessary for me to buy a gun. A concealed carry permit in the state of Texas is not subject to the federal government. It's subject to the state of Texas. 
How does this affect me? Money. That's what I want. Well, if you own a small business and needed a loan from the government, you'll have to wait. How does this affect me? Depending on how long this lasts, if you're planning to buy a house and need a federal loan, you'll have to wait. If you're a veteran, you might have to make a few trips to the mailbox before the next checks arrive. If you're on Social Security, however, don't worry, probably. Social Security payments were sent during the last shutdown. President Barack Obama is expected to keep workers on the payroll to process the checks. But there would, but would there be enough employees to process new benefits for the newly retired? Oh. First of all, who the hell gets a Social Security check anymore? Don't most people that are getting these Social Security payments have them direct deposited into their bank account? Maybe old people don't like direct deposit. I don't know. But so if you're, if you're retired, you're going to get your Social Security. If you're about to retire, there may be a delay in getting the beginning of your benefits. And if you own a small business and you want to borrow money, you'll have to wait. Oh, the, the, oh, the tragedy. The, oh, what is it? What do they say when the Hindenburg went down? Oh, the humanity. Oh, God. Anything di dirty or dingy or dusty. What? I mean, who wrote this? This is written like a freaking, I don't know, a freaking college kid on LSD wrote this article at CNN. Oscar the Grouch is a company of one. No one loves trash. But if you live in Washington, expect it to pile up there. It's a shutdown. There wouldn't be anyone to collect your garbage. Washington's budget has to be approved by Congress. No budget for the city. No trash collection. And according to the Washington Post, D.C. produces about 500 tons of garbage each week. So if you live in the district, there's going to be garbage everywhere. Uh, let's see. Washington, D.C. full of garbage. I know it's a metaphor, but how is that different? Does it affect you, dear TSP listener? How many of you live in the District of Columbia? If you do, move. Why are you there? Number one, again, the, do you understand the name of this is 10 ways a government shutdown will affect your daily life? Number one, I'm proud to be an American. <laughs> What? Perhaps the biggest hit would be the collective psyche. America is the largest economy in the world and a beacon for how democracy ought to work. To watch elected lawmakers engage in high-stakes staring contests with no one willing to blink is no way to do business. A recent CNN Opinion Research Corporation poll, because that's not biased, uh, found that 51% would blame the Republicans for the shutdown. Do you notice it doesn't say 49% would blame the, the Democrats? And the, like, the poll margin of error is probably 2% or something. Anyway, uh, the United States has, an, uh, has operated without a budget since 2009 and has avoided a government shutdown with last-minute deals. It's been one stomach-turning sequel after another. Not only did the government run out of money on Tuesday, the nation is set to hit its borrowing limit and potentially default on its debt in mid-October. Together they serve, in the words of CNN, senior White House correspondent Jim Acosta, a dysfunction double whammy. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Apps... Absolutely nothing. This country will not get into a, a economic shutdown or an economic collapse because we refuse to borrow money. The danger in this nation isn't refusing to borrow money that we can't pay back. It's borrowing money we can't pay back. Let me say that again. The danger in America today isn't Not borrowing money we can't pay back. It is borrowing money we can't pay back. We're already there. We're already there. But we just can get away with it longer than any corporation could ever do. Because we can print our own money. You want to know what's going to happen? Some deal will be made. They'll make a big stink about it. Both sides will blame the other side. And in the end, in the end, my friends... Both sides will sell you out. Both sides are going to sell you out. And they'll go back to their bullshit. And both sides will claim victory. A couple white-haired senators will come out and do a press conference and say, this is a good deal. We put the American people first. It, and they'll be temporary. And they'll kick the can yet again. When this actually becomes a problem is when they stop fighting about raising the debt ceiling and everybody decides it's okay and the debt runs away, that's when we are at the brink of the end of the current economic paradigm. 
not when we're debating about not borrowing money. Don't listen to the TV. Go on about your life. And I want to say something else here. There is a bunch of hubbub, rumor, mythological crap, unicorn, doomsday bullshit out there that October is when the shit will hit the fan. The government is planning to make it hit the fan. Your government doesn't want the shit to hit the fan. They want to kick the can as far as they possibly can. When the shit hits the fan, it won't be a planned event. It won't be a planned event. That's all I'm saying on that. Stop listening to Alex Jones. And with that, let me take you now back through the magical time machine known as podcasting, which archives everything ever said, for better or for worse, to 2009, the month of January. The date was the 20th. It was in my car, so the audio quality is about to plummet. And let's talk about something a little bit more constructive using airsoft and air guns for training to make sure that we're better prepared if we ever need to use the real thing. I'll be putting out a video this week that tells you or shows you why it's so important to be armed in this day and age. Unfortunately for the person that is being chased and attacked with his family in this video, he's in New York City, so he couldn't be armed. Keep that in mind as we discuss using what many people perceive as a toy is a professional training tool. And here you go, Jack Spierko in the car, January 20th, 2009. All right, moving on to the topic of today's show. What I'm going to talk about today is something that I just started fooling around with again. Um, it's kind of starting to get nice outside. Uh, I don't do a lot of this in my garage, even though I could, just because my garage is cluttered. I haven't straightened it up in a few months. Uh, I do this mostly outside my backyard. Since I'm blessed with good weather here in Texas, it's it's pretty nice place to do it. And that is shooting with airsoft. And I'm going to talk about shooting with airsoft. I'm going to talk about shooting with, with air pistols and air rifles that fire BBs and pellets, your more conventional air guns. And, and then moving from there into center fire uh, weapons like the 22 long rifle, uh, be it in pistol or rifle form, and even just a little bit of advice about stepping up from there into center fire world. And I'm going to do that from the aspect of you. Assume, I'm assuming that you are a uh, trained shooter, you know how to shoot, or you are a new shooter and you're going to work with somebody who's trained in how to shoot. I'm going to talk about it from that aspect and the advantages of using these tools for training and what they can do, believe it or not, to help us preserve the Second Amendment and our constitutional rights to keep and bear arms. Because believe it or not, airsoft may be one of the greatest assets that we in the firearms community have to win that battle. And I'll kind of bring that in along the way for you and just trust me, it'll work and it'll make perfect sense sense when I do. Okay, starting off with airsoft, if you're not familiar with airsoft, these are various uh, guns that fire a 6mm plastic BB as a projectile. Um, these BBs range from, from uh, 0.12 grains, uh, very cheaply manufactured, uh, not very much quality, to high quality uh, BBs that, that move up to 0.2 grains and all the way up, I think they're as high as 0.35. I'm not sure, I shoot mostly 0.2 uh, grains, which are significantly heavier than the cheap little yellow .12 grain BBs, and I also shoot biodegradable BBs, which means I'm not worried about them laying around in my backyard, uh, a few rainstorms and they're gone, and I recommend biodegradable, high-quality BBs for all of your airsoft needs, and I think that in any quality airsoft gun, moving up to .2 may result in less muzzle velocity, you get more accuracy and more consistency. Um... The beauty of airsoft guns is they are built, most of them anyway, to the exact dimensions of real-world firearms. In other words, you can go out and you can buy what's called an AEG, or Automatic Electric Gun, uh, in M4 Carbine. And M4 Carbine, uh, you know, of course, is the M16 variant that the uh, U.S. military carries. It will have a selector switch that moves from safe to semi to full auto. 
Uh, the magazine will release exactly the same way. The magazines are the exact same dimensions. They hold a lot more ammunition than in, you know, a 30 round magazine. I think most of them hold about 300 rounds, so the capacity is a little bit uh, excessive. But the functioning of the weapon, the dimensions of the weapon, the size of the weapon, and if you buy a high quality version of uh, of the weapon, it's all metal. The weight of the weapon will be almost identical to an M4 carbine, and, and that's not just true for M4 carbines. You can get M14s. Uh, you can get clones of most bolt-action rifles, from Mausers to Remington 700s uh, to the Swiss Army sniper rifle. You can buy uh, various clones of the same dimension, form, fit, and function, other than the fact that they're firing these 6mm BBs. Moving into the pistol world, there's a lot of variation there. You can go from 9 to $20 cheap uh, spring-actuated guns uh, that are cock-fire, cock-fire, and uh, they're not as realistic, obviously, as the higher-end guns. But generally, they are the same dimensions. I have a Colt uh, 4506 spring action gun. It was about 20 bucks. I bought it at Academy. Uh, came with two uh, magazines, and it doesn't function exactly like my 1911. But if I lay the two of them side by side, except for the little orange tip that prevents kids from getting shot by the police uh, or by scared homeowners, you can barely tell the difference in a picture. Their dimensions are identical, and the distance to the trigger, etc., is the same. And then there's kind of a step up from the spring-actuated pistol is the gas non-blowback. And these will either use CO2 or green gas. Uh, green gas is kind of a canned gas that you can refill. I'm not a big fan of it because it tends to be inconsistent unless you have very steady temperatures uh, between the time when you're charging and when you're actually shooting. And uh, you're looking for temperatures of 70s and 80s. So summertime, green gas works pretty great. But uh, wintertime, shooting either outside or maybe in a cold basement, you have some inconsistencies. Or they'll use CO2. And uh, they'll simply uh, function very similar, again, to the spring guns, except that they'll usually be semi-automatic. There are uh, electric pistols as well. They're usually kind of cheaper uh, guns. The electrical manu- uh, action in a pistol generally doesn't allow for a rate of fire consistent with a real semi-auto handgun. Uh, so those are kind of your options there until you step up to what's called a blowback design. Now, your blowback design pistols are modeled off of things like the 1911, the, the uh, Beretta M9, uh, Walter PPK, and just about any semi-auto handgun you can think of has a clone in gas blowback in a full metal version. And that means if you're like me and you shoot a 1911 as your primary sidearm, that if you buy a good quality steel gas-operated blowback 1911 clone, you have a great way to develop muscle memory and uh, to practice when you don't have time to get to the range for about a penny every time you pull the trigger versus what it costs you to buy, you know, 230-grade hardball for your 1911. It's very inexpensive. The BBs are really darn cheap. Your biggest expense, actually, in shooting is CO2 cartridges. So as you can see, for the experienced shooter, the airsoft world alone offers a lot of opportunity for practice, for training, and there's even leagues where people go out in the woods and shoot these things at each other, and they wear safety gear, and they have good rules of engagement. So if that sounds like something that's dangerous, you know, guys get hurt, but guys get hurt playing football. Guys get hurt playing rugby, and I think you get a lot more injuries football and rugby than you do from airsoft leagues. That's not my world. I'm not really into it. A lot of those guys are real pseudo-military types, and... uh, uh, I, I don't know. Some ex-military guys are really uh, pseudo-military types, and, and a lot of uh, prior service military people, such as myself, uh, we don't really dig the pseudo-military world. You're either military or you're not, and we just and we don't have nothing against anybody that's in that world. We just don't want to go out and pretend to be what we used to be. It, it would be kind of like uh, former high school football stars that weren't good enough to go to college, going out and setting up an adult league, and, and you know pretending that they're, you know, in the NFL. And some people like that, and some people don't. I I just happen to be one that doesn't. So if that's your thing, man, go at it. And I think there's a real potential for training there uh, when used in an organized manner with uh, clearing houses or urban warfare or jungle warfare. Uh, There's limitations because of the range of these weapons. And, uh, you know, 50 meters is a heck of a long shot for airsoft. And uh, if somebody's going to write in and tell me that they saw a guy do it at 300 feet, and, and that's fine, and those are the exceptions. But, yeah, I'm talking about main battlefield where these guys are out there with their electric weapons. Um, 50 meters is a long, long way. So, 
moving out of that and, and taking the approach that I said we would take of how does this help you train a new shooter is that it's probably the best way that I know of to train new shooters today and it's frankly something that wasn't even available 20 years ago uh, when I was really beginning to come up into the shooting sports myself. It wasn't there. And I've trained a lot of people to shoot by taking them to a gun range as the first time they shoot. And what I've determined after training people with airsoft is that it's much more preferable to put a realistic airsoft clone in their hands first, especially when you're talking about handguns. I I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I've trained new shooters where you put the gun in their hand, you get them to do everything right, they keep it downrange, you're you're ultra alert because you don't know what this person's going to do because you've never fired with them before. They fire the weapon a few times, maybe even empty it, but then they have this dazed look and they just kind of start to rotate back and the muzzle of that weapon is just rotating and if you're alert, your hand is on that muscle and you're bringing it down and usually after doing that once or twice um, they get they get it but it's a, it's an intimidating aspect of training a new shooter who's not used to the regiment of this is safety procedure alright I, I trained one young man the first weapon we had him firing was a shotgun and, and he was about 14 years old I guess and he was a big kid he had no problem shooting an 870 uh, 12 gauge with uh, standard skeet loads but he would fire it and he would get this, you know, he was just overwhelmed by it. He was into it. And he would get this look on his face and wow. And he would just start to turn. And you just see the muzzle of that, that, that shotgun coming around. And with a shotgun, at least the muzzle's on, you can grab it. Hey, listen, safety, downrange, blah, 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 right? Now, when you take somebody out to shoot an airsoft gun, the, the, especially the CO2 blowback, which if you're going to teach somebody to shoot a pistol, probably your best bet is a good, high-quality, all-metal gas blowback CO2 pistol. You're talking 100 to 200 bucks for the, the kind of the entry level upper end stuff, and, and worth the investment. Trust me. Now you put that into their hand, and you don't want to get shot. It's supposed to be at close range with one of these things. They can break skin, they can go into flesh, they do hurt. But as long as you're wearing eye protection, you're pretty safe, and no one's going to die. But yet there's enough of a fear factor to make safety important. All right. So now you're less nervous, you're less apprehensive. You're less worried about what they're going to do, right? You still have to be visual, you have to be alert, you have to be a good coach. But since your 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 nerves aren't ratcheted up, and this guy might turn around and shoot me, or shoot himself, or shoot the guy next to us on the range, or even not shoot anybody but do something stupid and get us thrown out of the range by the range officer. And all that apprehension is gone, you're a lot more calm, you're a better instructor to a new shooter who needs you to be a good, calm, relaxed instructor. You now have the opportunity to teach every aspect of the firearm, how to change a magazine, how to use the safety. If it's something like a single action 1911, full cock, half cock, down hammer, condition one, condition two, condition three, holstering and unholstering, opening the slide setting the weapon down in a cleared condition like you would at the range when people go downrange. Every aspect of these airsoft weapons is exactly the same as their counterparts, as long as we're not talking about the $9 plastic POSs, right? I'm going to talk about them in a second, too, because they have a value. Now, another aspect of this is... Usually when you take a new shooter to the range, unless you're blessed with a place where you've got a rural area where you can just go out in your back 40 and shoot, some people have that a lot of, and that, you know, that number of people that have that is going down every year. Um, you know, so there's not that much of that. Or, like, when I lived in Pennsylvania, there was a uh, a range on every piece of state game lands, and there were state game lands everywhere. And some of the bigger pieces of state game lands had two ranges. And they were free, and they were open to the public, and you just went there, and everybody kind of sorted themselves out, agreed about when it was time to go down range. And when you went there, you could set up things like reactive targets, like gongs and silhouettes. Uh, you could set up skeet on the, on the berms and shoot uh, skeet that's usually used for shotgun as a reactive target. And what I found with new shooters is when you let them shoot a reactive target rather than a piece of paper, especially when they're new and starting out, it's more exciting to them. They don't care if they can shoot a one-inch group. All right, When you have them shoot out of paper, they have a bullets everywhere, 12-inch diameter. One bullseye, man, that's what they remember. And that tells you that, they, that all they're thinking about is, can I hit what I'm aiming at? You put a paper in front of them, they're thinking about hitting the bullseye. If you put a tin can up or a piece of plywood, 
or uh, something like that, so a safe reactive target, they're not worried about hitting the bullseye. They're worried about hitting the target, knocking it over, making a reaction. And let's face it, anybody that shot pop bottles when they were a kid with a 22 knows, when you see something break, fall down, jump, it's a lot more fun. All right, it's just cool. So that's something that when you move into the airsoft realm, you take somebody outside, set up a box, throw some soda cans up on top of it, and, uh, you know, you can adjust the distance to the shooter. So maybe the weapon that you have is capable of making that shot easily at 25 feet, but you start the person out at 15 feet. They have success. They gain confidence. At the same time, you're training them in operation and safety. And, and to me, this is just the most outstanding tool ever created for introducing a new shooter. And then there's one more thing. When you put a firearm into a person's hands that's never shot before, make no mistake about it. With the exception of a very few, most new shooters are intimidated by the weapon. Because they're intimidated by the weapon, even at 22, they're more likely to flinch. They're more likely to jerk the trigger. They're more likely to do all the things, especially handguns. Right-handed shooters pull low left. Left-handed shooters pull low right. And that all has to do with hand position and arm position. And when you're squeezing, you're letting the supporting hand make motions that it's not supposed to make. Right? And it's so much harder to teach that when the person's afraid of the freaking gun. Put them with an airsoft, and they might even, some, especially younger people and females, may be intimidated the very first time they pull that trigger because they don't know what it's going to do. They've seen you shoot it. They've heard it. It cracks. It's almost as loud as a twenty-two, for God's sakes. You know, CO2 pistols. They're like, whack, whack, whack. They see that slide coming back. Is it going to hurt their hand? Whatever. Right? You, they shoot it once. They go, oh, this is no big deal. Now they're not afraid of it. Now they're willing to take your coaching. Now, before I kind of come out of airsoft and talk about pellet rifles and BB guns and things like that for a second and kind of a different level and a different use, let me say something about the cheap guns, the spring action pistols, especially the 4506. And uh, the, the, there's a Beretta clone spring pistol available at Academy, most of the sporting goods stores. It's also about a $20 pistol. And these work, you load up the magazine. Most of them have like a 15-round mag with your BBs. Slam the magazine home. You have to cock. You have to work the slide every time. That cocks the spring. Singular shooting. Bang. Click. Bang. Click. Bang. Click. What I've learned about these weapons, especially the Smiths and the Berettas, they're, they're very accurate used within their ranges. And I'm talking, you know, hitting a quarter at 50 feet if you use them within their ranges and you learn how your individual weapon shoots. Great sight picture. Okay. Slow rate of fire, which makes a kid or a new shooter concentrate more about every shot. The downside is they're all plastic and they're very, very lightweight compared to a full-size weapon. That's a bad thing from a training aspect for muscle memory and things like that and realism, and they don't have all the functionality of the upper-end all-metal gas blowbacks. But... What they do have is an ability to magnify error. And I didn't realize this until one day I was at Academy and on a larger. I thought, yeah, I'm going to buy one of these things and see what they'll do. So I bought this 4506 Smith and Wesson. That was the first one. I think I probably put a couple, you know, tens of thousands of rounds through it, playing with it in my uh, my rec room up in Pennsylvania in the cold winters. And uh, eventually it crapped out on me. And I was so impressed with it, I went out and bought another one. And every time I would shoot that thing consistently over time and train myself to overcome its lightness, and I'll explain that in just a second. I'd go to the range and I would shoot better than I've ever shot before. And I can tell you that when I take my 45 to the range now, I am a better shot today with my 45 than when the Army taught me how to shoot an M9. And I've always been a fair pistol shot. I'm now a much more consistent pistol shot. And I owe it, I think, more to that cheap gun than anything else. Here's why. You never see somebody shooting bench rest rifle competitions, supreme accuracy, 300 meters, right? These special Wildcat cartridges, 6mm PPC and stuff like that. You never see somebody saying, hey, I have the lightest rifle out here. Those guys are shooting rifles that are bricks. They're 16 pounds or more. Why? It's not really for recoil when you're shooting a 6mm PPC. 
Right? This is not a lot of recoil there to begin with. It's about the fact that a heavier weapon is more accurate because when you have weight, it takes a certain amount of effort to affect it. In other words, if I have a rock that's small and I flick it, it'll roll across the street. If I have a rock that's big and I flick it, nothing happens to it. The same thing's true with guns. And all the little errors that you make as a shooter, the lighter the gun, the more effect they have on it. So your shakes, your pulls, your drops, your, your lowering of your wrist, all the different mistakes that shooters make when you shoot a super light weapon are magnified. That's why a lot of these really light mountain rifles, right, they're great guns, but they're never as accurate as a conventional bolt because of that weight limitation. It's not the weapon's limitation, it's the shooter's limitation with the lighter weapon. These spring pistols also, when you fire them, you visibly see these little white pellets flying through the air. When you pull down left, you actually see the pellet in the air make a curve. All right, And it's not really curving. It's actually been curving from the time that it left the barrel. This is not something like uh, that movie Wanted where people were making bullets curve. That's not what's happening. That curve, that bullet's actually going straight. But the longer it travels, the more accentuated the curve appears to the eye. And you know exactly what you did wrong. So when you take a new shooter who's constantly shooting low left and he's insisting, it's not me, it's the gun, and you pick the gun up and boom, 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 you're tapping nine and ten ring, he still won't he'll say, well, it's sighted different for me and you. There could be some truth to that, but odds are that weapon is sighted in perfectly. But when you put these lightweight weapons in these people's hands, they can see for themselves these little errors because the errors are magnified and visible. So when if you were like going to train somebody to eventually shoot a, a 45 1911, getting one of these 4506 Smith and Wesson guns for 20 bucks, a nice 1911 clone for around 100 bucks, using it for your own personal training, and then slowly stepping somebody maybe a 22 in the middle as an interim weapon first fire arm, maybe even stepping them into a 9mm before they deal with the recoil of a 45, but I promise you by the time they get to that 45, you're going to have a safe, well-educated, well-informed shooter who knows the function of the weapon, who understands when something doesn't happen right on the range, it's his fault, and will be able to identify what he's doing wrong. This is a shortcut to a good shooter. That's what I see Airsoft does. Now, let's look at kind of the middle ground between center fire and rim fire and uh, Airsoft. Real briefly, let's talk about pellets and BBs. Everything that I just said about Airsoft, there's probably uh, a lot to be said the same for uh, pellet pistols in, uh, in particular. Uh, Crossman, for instance, makes a 357 revolver clone uh, that shoots, I think, 12 pellets three, and a 177. It's a beautiful pistol for training somebody to use a revolver. It functions almost identically. uses CO2. Uh, the thing with air rifles that are firing pellets, steel BBs, lead, these things are much more lethal. Now, generally, they're not lethal to humans, unless you're talking big bore air gun or PBA ammo, which I'm not going to get in today, uh, and, and specific shot placement. They're not usually something that is going to hurt a person. But there may be a lot of places where it's legal to fire airsoft and not legal to fire uh, more conventional air gun. Uh, so that's one consideration. Uh, another consideration there is that the other side of that is they can be used for small game hunting. So they're more, for our community and the survival community, if you have a good brake barrel uh, pellet rifle, uh, and I have a Beeman that's uh, it got two different barrels. It'll shoot 177 and 22. And, uh, I mean, it is dynamite on squirrels. I've taken out a few squirrels with it, and when you get a squirrel in the head or even through the shoulders with that 22 at, you know, 20 to 30 meters, they don't even move. I mean, I've seen squirrels take shoulder shots from 22 long rifles and run, and uh, I guess it's the, uh, the 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 fact that these pellets, when you get a shoulder on a squirrel, they kind of dump all the energy inside the squirrel. They might flip around a little bit and run a tail up and down, but uh, they're out and they're done, and it's a great tool for eliminating backyard pests. For training your shooters, it's kind of a next step. Especially if you're taking a child and you really want them to get things and, and get them down pat and be able to, you know, you want to say, what are our three rules, of, three primary rules of safety at the range, or whatever it is that you have, whatever it is that you're instilling in your shooter, and you want them to be able to rattle that stuff off, you want them to take it seriously, you want them to prove to you they're ready for a next step. 
it, it might be a really good, you know, kind of incentive for that kid. Hey, you know what? You want to shoot the pellet pistol, right? Then you got to get all this right, and we'll move there. Then you'll prove yourself there. Then Dad's going to take you to the range. All right, so it's useful that way. My point about them, though, is you can use them for training the same way. And, and I want you to think about this. There are people that shoot in the Olympics with these pellet rifles. that They measure the accuracy that these guys shoot with, not by the tightness of the group, but these guys all shoot a single hole. And whoever's hole is the smallest is the winner. All right, some of them shoot a hole that's not much bigger than a single single pellet. You really think if you hand that guy a 306 and tell him to shoot a deer, if he wants that deer dead, that deer has a chance at 100 yards? I don't. I, I think that now that guy might not be the greatest center fire shooter in the world, but he damn sure has enough muscle memory and enough understandings of firearms to make a shot like that. So all of these weapons are great for training. As you move people into the 22 uh, rimfire realm, and, you, you know, kind of my go-to gun, I guess because I own one for training people with a 22 pistol, is the Ruger Mark II. The long barrel, heavy barrel target model, it makes shooting well, it's a very, very accurate, easy to operate weapon, and I like starting people with a longer barrel because, again, if they do kind of brain fart on you out at the range, it's easier for you to see what they're doing and maybe grab an arm and turn them back around and say, hey, you're forgetting your safety rules, that type of thing. Uh, so you take somebody to the range now with this 22. Another great little 22 for training is the Sig Mosquito. Uh, that's a gun you might really want to look at. It's very affordable, and it's built more like your conventional combat pistol than something like a Ruger uh, Mark II or a Browning Buck Mark, uh, which are two of kind of my favorites. Uh, and there's a, there's a plethora of 22 semi-auto pistols out there and 22 revolvers. They're great interim steps, very low recoil, but yet now you're holding a lethal weapon. It's a new level of respect between the shooter and the coach. It's a new level of trust to allow the shooter to put into their hands. Yet, it doesn't have a huge muzzle blast or a lot of recoil, so they're a lot more likely to stick with the fundamentals that you've taught them with a blowback airsoft pistol than if you just go ahead and here's my 1911 full power 230 grain loads and they're dealing with all this recoil before they're ready for it. And then you kind of step them through maybe a 9mm before you go into something like a 45, if you're even going to go there. Because I love 45s doesn't mean that you need to love 45s. Um, but pretty much I carry a 45 auto because they don't make a 46 auto. Uh, I like my uh, I like the holes to be big, uh, and I like the assurance that comes with a weapon that's been around for over 100 years uh, that I think John Browning gave an amazing gift to the shooting world when he created that gun. So that's kind of my view of this thing and, and how it can add more to your life as a shooter and as a survivalist. But how in the heck can I make a case for this defending our Second Amendment? Well, it's a lot like gardening and how gardening protects our food supply. See, the more people that garden, the more diversity we preserve in the agricultural system, the less dependence we have on the mass-produced food system. And if you add buying locally to that, you really start to make a significant impact. And people have asked this question about this whenever I talk about gardening and buying locally and said, does it really matter? Yes, it does. The biggest lie that the powers that be will ever tell you is that your garden doesn't make a difference. They tell you that because they're afraid of it. If your garden really didn't make a difference, they wouldn't say anything or put out any messaging at all they would ignore you. People only resist what they fear. Please remember that in all walks of life. Well, very, and what makes gardening so effective is when your neighbor sees you gardening and you have your kid go over and give them a bag of tomatoes or something like that, it starts to rekindle memories that they have of a relative or maybe when they were kids they were gardening. It starts to spread. It's fertile. As Jules DeVay says, resistance is fertile. All right. So that works in gardening. Well, the reality is it works even better with firearms ownership. Because, frankly, owning and taking a gun to the range once in a while and possessing a firearm is a lot less work. And overall, at least after the initial investment, costs less recurring money in many instances than being a gardener. Gardening pays itself back. We all know that. But there's that, you know, you got to buy seeds, you got to buy soil, you got to buy tools, all these things. And it just seems like you're all you're buying some new fertilizer. You don't have enough compost you're making, so you have to 
buy some. There's all this, this stuff where, you know, a brick of 22 shells for 25 bucks goes a long way. 500 rounds for 25 bucks. Nice little 22 pistol, $150, $200, right? And you go to the range and it's maybe 8 bucks, 9 bucks to shoot. And you do it four or five times a year. You're a gun owner. And then your psychology changes when that happens. Even if you're not, like, you know, we have a forum thread where people are posting pictures of their firearms. And, you know, some of us are real gun nuts, and I'm a gun nut. I I admit it. And uh, even if they don't go to that level, just owning one or two firearms makes them now part of the coalition of firearms owners. Now when somebody starts talking about taking away a gun, it's not an etherical concept to this individual. It's they want my personal property. Hey, I know how to use this thing. I'm properly trained. I don't have any of their schoolings or certifications. They have decided that they need to enforce on us as a government. I was taught. I was trained. I know how to use this. I know when to use it, when not to. Maybe they go ahead and take the step of becoming a concealed carry holder if they live in a state that honors freedom and the Second Amendment. Right? And they start to realize that this talk means something to them. The more people like that, the harder it is to infringe on the rights of all gun owners. Every time a new gun owner is born, the Second Amendment is reinforced. And the more things you can do to get your fellow Americans into, involved in, and enthusiastic about the shooting sports, the more you do to preserve the constitutional freedom that this nation has enjoyed for over 200 years. Written by men that understood what liberty was all about and what liberty was worth. And that your right to self-protection and your right to oppose your government should never be infringed. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, I believe said this, when a nation, or when a, when, a, when, a, when a people fears its government, there is tyranny. When a government fears its people, there is liberty. And every new gun owner strikes fear into the heart of the government, not because of a fear of revolution, because of fear of independence. What government wants from people is dependence. That's why they have all these programs, all these safety nets, they call them. All this crap is to make you dependent. Just like a crack addict is dependent on his dealer, the government of this country wants its people dependent upon it. And that is not a direct attack on our government. That is what happens to all government when it becomes big enough and powerful enough. It's a logical consequence of government. And over sized, overbloated government. We want to fix everything. The goal is noble. The result is abysmal. By fixing everything, we have to create dependence. Because if you fix all my problems, I become dependent upon you. The two are inseparable. Go out and create new gun owners, and you take away from that system. You reduce its insidious nature, and you preserve our Second Amendment. And things like airsoft and air rifles, when used properly to take someone who has never touched a firearm before, that may be apprehensive, that may be feared, that may be blinded by ignorance because they just don't know and were never exposed to it, and using that to teach them how to be a safe, effective, proud owner of a firearm can help preserve our liberty and help give us all a better life in this country. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent